So today I want to introduce the first of a series that I want to do about the existence of God. I came across this book by Peter Kreeft and Ronald Tesselli called Handbook of Christian Apologetics. And inside they have, well, chapter three is 20 arguments for the existence of God. And my initial thought was, wow, there are 20 arguments for the existence of God. Um, and being a pretty skeptical person by nature, I thought it'd be interesting to uh, work my way through them slowly and let the skepticism come out and see if any of these arguments are any good. And that's what I hope to do as we progress on this podcast. So let's get into it. Now the first argument that these authors lay out is called the argument from change. And um, apparently this is one of the, well, a version of one of Aquinas's so-called five ways. Um, and the authors also give us a warning with his argument, um, saying that it's pretty abstract and difficult. So my hope is that we can break it down uh, and discuss it. So what's the argument of change? Well, it's, even though they say it's abstract and difficult, it's pretty easy to observe. Uh, as we look around, we see the world changing around us. We see babies growing, we see trees growing, um, we see weather changing. Everything we see is constantly in a process of change. And sometimes that process may be uh, quick and observable. Other times it might be slow um, and not very observable. Now the question this argument pushes is what causes the change? What is the reason that anything changes? Um, because something in and of itself really only has the potential or the capacity to change. It can't, it can't on itself. So before we get any further, because talking about it this way is making it somewhat harder to understand. So let's uh, look at a specific example and see what we mean. So let's take a look at an acorn. An acorn turns into an oak tree. Uh, however many years it takes, an acorn eventually will turn into an oak tree. However, an acorn is not an oak tree. It only has the potential to become an oak tree. In order for it to become an oak tree, it must change into an oak tree, obviously. So the question becomes, how does it change into an oak tree? Well, the acorn needs the right soil, the right nutrients in the soil. It needs the right amount of sunshine, the right amount of water, and a temperate climate. If the acorn lacks any one of those, it will not become an oak tree, no matter how hard you try. And an oak tree will not grow in a desert. Um, it won't grow in the Arctic. The climate's not right. It won't grow in the ocean. It's too much water. Um, it won't grow in sand. It's not the right type of soil. And it lacks the nutrients in the soil. Now, does the acorn have control of any of these factors? No. It doesn't. The acorn cannot control where it's planted. It can't control what type of soil it's planted in. It can't control 
the amount of sunshine it gets. It can't control the rain. Um, it can't do anything except be an acorn. So the argument is that it's these outside factors that bring out the acorn's potential to become an oak tree. Another way to put it is that it's these outside influences and these outside factors that actually cause the acorn to result into an oak tree. So before these changes happen, the oak tree doesn't actually exist. Only the acorn exists. But if the acorn never exists, um, then an oak tree can never exist. An oak tree can not come out of an acorn that didn't exist. So let's say that in my yard, there's nothing but walnut trees. Then in theory, I should only ever have walnut trees because walnut trees do not produce acorns. They produce walnuts. And out of walnuts grow walnut trees, not oak trees. Only acorns produce oak trees. Now I say in theory because it is possible that a squirrel or something brings an acorn into my yard and that acorn gets in the ground and up comes an oak tree. But unless something like that happens, um, if nature takes its course, then I will never have an oak tree because I'll only have walnut trees. So that's what I'm trying to get at. If an acorn does not exist in my yard, there will never be an oak tree. Now we can take that further and stretch it out and say, if no acorn exists in the world, then there will never be any oak trees. So then that begs the question, where does an acorn come from? Well, that's addressed a little bit later in the argument, but um, we can take this concept of the acorn and the oak tree and apply it to anything. Because the observation is that nothing can change it itself. Um, the authors even point out that self-moving things like animal bodies are moved by desire or free will. So it's really a universal application that says that nothing can ch change itself. So how do we get to God from here? Well, this is how Kreeft and Teselli do it. They say, the universe is the sum total of all these moving things, however many there are. The whole universe is in the process of change, but we have already seen that change in any being requ requires an outside force to actualize it. Therefore, there is some force outside in addition to the universe, some real being transcendent to the universe. This is one of the things meant by God. So they take this idea of the acorn and they observe that outside forces um, have to act on this acorn in order to actualize the change. Um, and they point out that this is true with everything. Everything needs an outside force or outside forces to actualize the change. And the universe is the sum total of these changing things. But it's not just the parts of the universe that are changing. It's not just the acorns that are changing. It's the whole universe that it's changing. And since something, whether it's an acorn or a universe, needs outside forces for it to change, 
that means that the universe requires an outside force to change. And that outside force must transcend the universe and be separate from the universe. And that's one of the things that we mean by God. Therefore, God exists. They didn't say, therefore, God exists. But that's what is implied. Now, as it's laid out in this book, it's not written as a formal argument. And what I mean by that, it's not put in a form where there's specific premises uh, with a conclusion that logically follows. Um, I don't know if there are versions of this as a formal argument, and that's not really my concern, because my concern with this podcast is we take things that we hear, we try to process them, and discuss them, and work them out. If you want to find out whether or not there's a formal argument out there, all you need to do is look it up. Um, I'm not going to do that because, well, like I said, that's not the point of this podcast. So, now that we've heard the argument, let's try to break it down. Uh, first and foremost, I don't like this argument whatsoever. I don't think it's compelling. I don't think it's convincing. And I will personally will never use it, at least on its own. Um, this argument is missing some things that I think are necessary to pair it with another argument to try and reach the desired conclusion that these arguments are trying to get to. So what problems specifically do I have with this argument? Um, well, first of all, they seem to assume that the immaterial world exists. When they bring up that things can change based on free will or desire, they're assuming that free will and desire exist. And I don't think someone who's a hardcore materialist, as some atheists claim to be, um, I don't think they are in actuality, but someone who's a hardcore materialist cannot accept things that are not material, and that includes free will and desire. So if you say to them that the reason that they can move their hand is because they will it to move. They might just say, nonsense, it's because there are neurons firing in my brain, sending signals to my muscles, causing my hand to move. And then where do you go from there with the atheist? What do you say to them to show them that free will exists and immaterial things exist? I just don't think you can get there uh, at least with this argument alone. And in the long run, I think that causes some big problems for this argument. Um, and that's mainly why I want to be convinced of it. Because if you can't show that immaterial things exist and are necessary, then how do you ever get to God? Well, you might say that you get to God because the universe needed something to begin. Um, because in the argument... We talk about how if the acorn never existed, then the oak tree will never exist. And if we work that backwards and say that the oak tree exists, therefore the oak tree had to come from somewhere. And it's most logical to believe that it came from an acorn, not a walnut. And we use that idea and apply it to the universe. Since the universe exists, if we trace it backwards... It had to have come from somewhere because modern science tells us that the universe is not eternal, that it had a beginning. So if the universe essentially was that acorn at one time, 
where did the acorn come from? Well, Christians would obviously say God. But again, I'm not ready in this argument to make the step from the material to the immaterial because this argument does not address that the immaterial actually exists. Why, with this argument, could the cause of the universe not be material? It could be a multiverse or some other physical cause that brought the universe into being. I mean, there's a lot of theories out there. Now, I think it is possible to go from the material and show that the immaterial exists, but you need a different argument to help that cause. I just don't see how it's possible to do that with what we have in front of us today with this argument. And so that's probably my biggest problem with this argument is because it assumes God rather than actually proves God. But what other problems do I have with this argument? Um, well, in the book, the authors write, and I quote, are other things outside the changing thing also changing? Are the movers also moving? If so, all of them stand in need right now of being acted on by other things or else they cannot change. No matter how many things there are in a series, each one needs something outside itself to actualize its potentiality for change. Now, the biggest problem I have in that statement is when they say no matter how many things there are in a series. This really seems to imply that there could, could be, and I say could be very loosely, um, an infinite regress of causes, uh, which in reality is impossible, but the way they phrase it, it seems like it's very likely. And that just doesn't sit well with me. Um, and if, if what they say is actually true, then it could be applied to the immaterial that they assume as well. So if they say that something can be caused by free will, well, what is outside free will that's being acted upon? Uh, Calvinists might say God is the cause of your actions. However, people who believe in libertarian free will would disagree. Um, they would say that we have the ability to choose our own actions um, without God imposing those actions or those choices upon us. Now, again, that statement can be taken further um, and it could be asked, well, did God change when he decided to make the universe? Was that choice actually a change? Because um, if change is caused by outside forces, and if that is a change, then what outside force acted upon God's free will, um, well, quote unquote, free will, to cause the universe to come into existence? Because if we look back at the acorn, we see that if there are no outside influences on the acorn, whether they cause growth or decay, if those outside influences are not there, there is no change. The acorn stays absolutely static. It, it just remains in its current state as it is right now until something acts upon it. So that just makes me wonder, can the same be said of God with this argument? 
um, if there are no outside influences beyond God, wouldn't it be reasonable to think that God just stays static? That there are no choices, even free will choices, that he can make on his own without something influencing or compelling him to make that change. I don't know. I It's just another reason why I don't like this argument. Another problem I have with this argument is when the authors state, and I quote, The universe is the sum total of all these moving things, however many there are. The universe is in the process of change. Now, to me, I have a problem with it because it seems like they changed the definition of what the universe is. First, they say that the universe is the sum total of all these moving things. So that means that the universe is the totality of all its moving parts. But then they say the universe is in itself is in the process of change. So then they define the universe as its own entity, as its own singular entity with no moving parts. It, it itself is the moving part. So let's talk about that one a little bit. We've already discussed the part that appeals to God being the outside force requiring the universe to change. So now I want to shift focus and talk about the statement of the universe being the sum total of all these moving things. So sum, like I said, sum implies the totality of its parts. So if we look at 1 plus 1 equals 2, the sum of 1 plus 1 is 2. 2 is the totality of the parts, which the parts are 1 and 1. 2 doesn't cause 1 and 1, but instead it's the result of 1 plus 1. So if it's the result, then I don't see how we can consider 2 a separate entity. If I have one apple and one apple, obviously I have two apples. But I don't see how those two apples are its own separate entity. I might call them my apples, and that creates the distinction between my apples and your, your apples. But my apples are really just one apple and one apple. Now let's say I have one apple in my left hand and one apple in my right hand, and that's what causes me to have two apples, and those two apples are my apples. But let's change the apple in my left hand and put another apple in my left hand. So I have two apples in my left hand and one apple in my right hand. So now the equation is two plus one because the two describes the apples in my left hand and the one describes the apple in my right hand. And that means my apples are now three apples. But now you might say, Kyle, you just proved that the whole can change if the parts change. Well, that's just my point. Um, the sum, the totality of my apples changed only because one of the parts changed. My apples consists of the two and the one now, um, but that describes what I have internally. That describes my two plus one. The sum, 3, is the result of that internal change. 
three only changed because one of the parts changed. That doesn't mean that the sum itself as an, as its own entity is changing. It only describes the change on the inside. Now, if we take this and apply it to the universe as they defined it, um, it is the sum of all moving things. These moving things are the parts that when taken as a whole compose the entire universe. So that means by that definition, the change of the universe is only the result of the totality of the parts changing. But again, these parts are all internal. So, so the universe itself is not changing. The universe is only changing because it's the result of everything within the universe that is changing. But Kreeft and Teselli take all these inner parts, which are, which are changing, and then they say that the universe is the sum of all these changing internal parts. Then they say that this change is actually the result of God influencing the universe. And to me, that, that sounds like they're trying to have their cake and eat it too. They're saying that the universe changing is the result of all these changing movie parts. But then they turn around and say that the change is actually the result of God moving the universe or changing the universe or putting his influence on the universe and causing that change. So I think we can actually look at this another way too if we look at something like the water cycle. Water is always changing all over the world. It's, it's constantly moving from one state to another state. So it starts by pooling on the ground, whether it's an ocean or lake or the morning dew, um, but then it evaporates. It changes from a liquid to a gas and it goes up in the air. And once it's in the air, it congregates in the air and then it, the, the evaporation changes into storm clouds. And once the storm clouds become heavy enough because there's so much water in that one area, it rains. The rain comes down, and so the gas turns back into a liquid, the rain comes down, and then it pools again on the ground. So water molecules are in a constant state of change. They're constantly moving, they're constantly turning into one form or another, and the water cycle is the sum of these changes. The water cycle explains this entire process. It doesn't explain one part in particular, it explains the totality of it. But the question is, does the water cycle change? Of course not. The water cycle only explains the totality of its internal parts. It only talks about and addresses what happens to water within the cycle. It doesn't, it's not its own entity. Now, something interesting to note is that within the water cycle, each change actually helps bring about the next change. So the evaporation in the water, the change from uh, liquid to gas is what actually helps cause the storm clouds and the rain. So the water turning from a liquid to gas is actually what's helping it 
turn back from a gas to a liquid. There's almost like a symbiotic relationship. Each part is scratching the other's back and helping the next part reach its potential and achieve its result. Um, and I just don't see how that can't be applied to the universe. Um, if, if the water cycle is the sum of all the changes of water, then couldn't it also mean that the universe is the sum of all of its moving parts? Now, it's my opinion that the universe could be described as all of the entropy in the universe. Um, but still, that doesn't make the universe its own changing entity. It just means that everything that adds up to what is called the universe is changing. So that's why I don't find this a very compelling argument. If I would have heard this argument when I was an agnostic, I would have just rolled my eyes and wanted to have given it a second thought. I think it's weak, um, and I think it could only be powerful if it was tied and used um, in conjunction with another and much stronger argument. But as it is on its own, um, I, I just, it's my personal opinion that we should just avoid it almost altogether. It's fine that if we keep it filed away in our minds, um, because there might be this uh, rare instance where it may be useful. But if this is really just a modernized version of Thomas Aquinas's five ways, then uh, maybe it was useful back when he came up with it. But I, what we see today and what we know today, um, especially about astrophysics and the way of the world, I just don't see how it fits in this modern time. But hey, that's just one guy's opinion. I could be wrong. I'm open to being wrong. I'm open to hearing what you think. I'm open to finding out how you find it compelling or how you don't find it compelling. I, I just don't want to be one of those people that try to push an argument and push its validity um, when I feel otherwise. I don't want to say, well, this proves God just because I wanted to prove God. Because in the long run, I think that can be more harmful than helpful. But let me know what you think. Um, you can go to the webpage at uh, www.gothinkonit.wordpress.com or find me on Facebook and Twitter at GoThinkOn. Thanks.